Welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, rating all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 86, Pope Sergius the First. Sergius. Sergius. And you know, I'm going to say up top that the Sergii tend to be a, a scandalous lot. Um, generally, when you hear the name Pope Sergius, you can think of scandal. Okay, that's good to know. They're surging into scandal or something. I don't know. They definitely are surging into scandal as as a whole, as a Sergius whole. But our first Sergius, not so much. Are we sure we want to use Sergius whole for this? <laughs> no, but that that is what I said. So. <laughs> I know nothing about this person. Well, it's okay, because he is not as scandalous as his successors shall be, but I know that when people hear the name Sergius, they're like, ooh, Sergius. We're in for it in entirely different ways with this Sergius. All right, there we go. Let's get into it, because it has been a long time since we have recorded. Uh, I think it's been like three weeks Oh, uh, yeah, something uh, like that. Five weeks? <laughs> It's been so long. School. School is a thing that happens for children. <laughs> yes. Sergius was born in around the year 650 in Palermo in Sicily, which, by the way, in Latin was called Panormus. <laughs> Panormus. It's also some sort of Pizza Hut deal, apparently. You can get a Panormus pizza, which definitely came up while I was trying to find out. His father's name was Tiberius, and he was from Antioch, so Sergius was of some Syrian heritage. And this also suggests that his father was some sort of businessman, because commercial trading between Sicily and Syria was very strong at this time. Thank you for business. Thank you for business. Sergius came to Rome in his mid-twenties, around the 670s in the papacy of Adeodatus II, and like our other popes coming out of Sicily lately, this was likely due to the attacks of the Muslim Caliphate on Sicily. When he entered the Roman Church, Sergius made a name for himself due to his skill in liturgical music, in quotations, but it doesn't say lovely singing voice this time. Can only make music, can't sing. Can't sing. That's fine. And in June of 683, he was appointed as the Cardinal Priest of Santa Susanna by Pope Leo II. And this would be the role that he was still holding four years later when he was elected as Pope. But things were not nearly that smooth, because once again, we have quite an election kerfuffle on our hands. Conan was like, why don't you consider this man my successor? And that's illegal. It's so illegal. And the reason that he did that is because somebody else was doing a similar thing, which was also illegal. This kerfuffle is going to be bigger than our last kerfuffle. Let's get into it, because while Pope Conan was laying sick and dying, his archdeacon, Pascal, had already written to the Exarch of Ravenna, who is now John II Platon, with significant bribes to have the Exarch throw his influence around and make Pascal the next pope. Oh, he called his, uh... Local Instagram buddy? He did, yeah. He's like, you know, gotta get those, those, we'll do a paid promotion of our skinny tea, which is me, Pascal. <laughs> Make me. <laughs> Pascal the skinny tea. That, that's gonna stick now. Is it spelled like, uh, Pasquale? No, it is not in this, but in Italian it probably would be because we also have a Pope Pascal coming up in the future and he is a Pasquale, so. He was going to use the Exarch, he's bribing the Exarch to now make him the next Pope. Super, super duper illegal. And then Conan had heard about this and was like, nah, man, you should have this priest called Sergius. Super illegal. And when Conan died in September of 687, some of the Roman clergy had actually been influenced by the Exarch. They purchased some skinny tea. <laughs> they purchased that skinny tea and they made him the next pope. However, this was not all of the clergy. 
And it turned out that a significantly larger faction definitely did not want this skinny tea. They know it just gives you diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) And instead, they wanted the archpriest Theodore. And this is the same priest, Theodore, that the army had supported before Pope Conan's election. So these clergymen also got together and also held an election to have Theodore be the next pope. So they're like, no, not skinny tea. You need to do 8,000 reps of, I don't know, push-ups. Theodore is beefy push-up man. Let's go with it. Because, well, he is supported by the military, so it's perfect. So we now have two popes that have been elected, and neither of them are Sergius. And things are about to get crazy and completely devolve into violence as both factions fight for control of the Lateran. Like, they are battling over this building. Theodore's majority held the inner Lateran, and Pascal's party held the outer grounds. And it started to very much look like we're going to have a Damasus-level massacre. Not good. (laughs) No, definitely not good. But the civic officials and military officers in the city are not about to let this happen again on their watch. And they, alongside a group of Roman citizens, come up with a plan to basically pull the rug out from beneath both factions before they start killing each other. And so, in a congregation at the Palatine Imperial Palace, the priest Sergius was elected by the crowd. Yes, that means we now have three popes. Oh, well, I mean, this is crowd pope, which, you know, how crowd popes are the best popes. No one argues about crowd popes. You say that, but um, I'm very, very deep into writing the Carolingian popes, and, um... We'll we'll come back to that. I quote from the Liver Pontificalis. Theodore and his supporters got to the Patriarchate first and occupied its inner areas, while Pascal held the outer parts from the Oratory of St. Sylvester and the Basilica of the House of Julius, which overlooks the grounds. Since neither would give way to the other, but each ferociously continued trying to dislodge the other, the dignitaries of the judges the army of the Roman soldiery, the majority of the clergy, and particularly of the sacerdotes, and a crowd of the citizens adopted a plan and made their way to the imperial palace. For a long time, they discussed what should be done and how the struggle between the two rivals should be settled. It was God's will that with one mind they should settle on the person of the above-named Sergius, then a venerable priest. Taking him from the midst of the people, They brought him to the oratory of Christ's martyr St. Caesarius, which is inside the imperial palace, and from there they led him to the Lateran Episcopum with praise and acclamation. Although the doors of the Patriarchate were shut and barricaded on the inside, the faction which had elected the venerable Sergius was stronger and so had the advantage and forced an entry. We now have this third faction who's been watching all the fighting and they're like, no. So they elect Sergius and now they show up at the Lateran with all this muscle and they strong arm their way into the Lateran to force a conclusion and demand recognition of Sergius as this compromise candidate pope. And so... According to the sources, when they entered the Lateran, and Theodore saw the overwhelming support Sergius now had of the populace and the men with the weapons, he recognized Sergius's election and encouraged his followers to do the same. So he's like, all right, I'm out. Cool. That's fine. You can be Pope. I don't want to be Pope that bad. Pascal, on the other hand, is said to have made a show of accepting Sergius's election and relenting his claim. But when he left, he immediately wrote to the exarch, and he said, Hey, that bribe I offered you, how about I make it a hundred pounds of gold if you come to Rome and support me? That's a lot of pounds of gold. That is now, like, sponsored level Instagram featured story. <laughs> you gotta have, like, several disclaimers under it. Yeah, he's, he's gonna come to Rome now. And he does. He comes to Rome. But when he arrives, he realizes that by now, with Theodore willingly submitting to Sergius, and Sergius having a majority, going against the majority in an already contentious situation was not going to be in his best interest or benefit. 
He's like, oh, I've come into a losing battle here. Nah. But he was the Exarch, and although it had been eliminated in law, he decided he was still going to get his. In order to recognize Sergius's election as valid, he would collect a fee, quote-unquote, that had been promised by Pascal, and he was going to now call it a consecration tax. None of this is legal. No, it, that has been done away with. We don't pay consecration taxes on popes anymore. And this is what Sergius tells him. He goes, absolutely not. That's, that's not how we do. Uh, I did not bribe you. I am not going to pay you any money. That's going to look like simony, right? You paying for the office of the Pope here. It's not going to happen. But the exarch is like, no, I, I was promised 100 pounds of gold, and I'm not going anywhere until I get it. And so if the Pope wasn't going to pay... He's going to bust his kneecaps? <laughs> in an architectural sense, I suppose, yes. He's going to seize... And I quote again, Thanks to Pascal's wretched behavior, the exarch applied an imposition and penalty on the church of St. Peter's. What Pascal had promised the exarch, that is, a hundred pounds of gold, he exacted on the part of the church with the bishop holy elect Sergius protesting that he had not promised to give anything and that there was no possibility of it. I didn't sign a contract with you. I sure didn't. To move the minds of those who saw it to remorse, he had taken the chandeliers and crowns from which the old had hung before the holy altar and confessio of St. Peter, taken down and handed over as a pledge. Not even this deflected the exarch's hardness, until he had received precisely the stated 100 pounds of gold. <sighs> so he's just like, great, I'm gonna take all your from inside St. Peter's. And then he does. And then he leaves. So... On that awkward interaction, Sergius was consecrated on the 15th of December, 687, with the Exarch's approval, and, and that was that. At least he's Pope now. And, and that's the end of that. S sort of. It's not the end of Pascal, but that is a story we will be covering on Patreon. So, September patrons, you are getting two for the price of one. Two anti-popes, Pascal and Theodore. But like you said, Sergius is Pope, and he's got to get to Poping. And he's going to get involved in quite a lot. Let's start with the longest coming. Remember all the way back when we were talking about the three chapters? Oh yeah, that was ages ago. Was back in Vigilius' episode and the Second Council of Constantinople. So that's episode 61 and 61b, if you're looking for it. We're not going to reopen those doors, but we are going to talk about Northern Italy, because as we discussed in those episodes, Northern Italy, specifically Milan and Aquileia, had broken with Rome and refused to adhere to the condemnation of the three chapters. Since that time, we've had Milan re-enter communion with Rome in 581 under Pope Pelagius II, and the Istrian churches had come back under Pope Honorius. And now finally... Finally, in the year 699, the last holdouts of Aquileia, urged by the Lombard king Cunipert, finally ended the schism with Rome and rejoined the rest of the church. So this means that the Italian church is finally unified for the first time in 150 years. Here I quote from Thomas Hodgkin's Italy and Her Invaders. So the schism smoldered on till the very end of the 7th century when the reigning Lombard king Cunipert summoned a council at Pavia, which was attended by a full representation from the lately schismatic patriarchate of Aquileia. With shouts of triumph, they entered the church, declaring that they renounced the heresy of Theodore and his companions and wished to restore the unity of the church. Tears and sobs expressed the overpowering emotion with which the spectators, Catholics and schismatics alike, witnessed this ending of so long a struggle. Legates were sent to bear the joyful news to Pope Sergius, who returned for answer to King Cunipert. He which converteth a sinner from the error of his ways shall save his soul from death, and shall cover a multitude of sins. At the same time, he gave orders that all the manuscripts setting forth the doctrines of the now-defeated sect should be burned, lest their errors should ever again infect the souls of the new converts. 
So it's finally, after all of this time, and like 24 popes, we are now done with the three chapters. Oh boy, that was so long. And now we need to talk about a new group, the Maronites. And honestly, the Maronites could be an entire rabbit hole or bonus episode on their own with their own very unique and unusual history, because they are very much an anomaly of the church in so many ways. So we may actually come back to this at a future time. So we're only going to explain what will be relevant for the time being. The Maronites are a Catholic Christian group who are now centered around Mount Lebanon, but they originally came from Antioch. The Maronites take their namesake from St. Maron, a 4th century hermit monk and mystic from Syria, whose followers would establish the monastery of St. Maron on the Orontes. And at the time of Pope Sergius, these Orthodox Catholics were one of only a few small groups in Antioch that were continuing to resist the ongoing Muslim expansion, which we've seen has caused many other Christian populations to flee. We even spoke about the situation in Antioch in our episode on the Third Council of Constantinople because the Patriarch of Antioch had been someone who had been appointed in and lived in Constantinople because of the turmoil in the area. And of course, this has been going on far longer than that, all the way back to 609 when the last in-place, boots-on-the-ground Patriarch in Antioch, Anastasius II, had been murdered. So now, in 685, the Maronites decide that in order to give their Christian independence a more stable foothold, they required a new patriarch to actually live in the city and serve, right? We can't have these people representing us in Constantinople just because the area is chaotic. We need somebody who actually represents us, who is boots on the ground. And so they elect a man called St. John Maron, who added the Marin to his own name after being educated in the monastery of St. Marin. And so they send this decision to the Pope. They're like, look, we were tired of this appointing structure. Let us do this this way, please. Please confirm St. John Marin to be our patriarch of Antioch. This decision was sent to the Pope, and Sergius outright confirmed their choice. It gave them a patriarch actually in the city. And it also gave them the first Maronite patriarch of Antioch, which will actually in the future have its own sort of apostolic succession type claims by Maronites to the patriarchy. And so under St. John Maron, the Maronites are going to flourish, they're going to be able to remain independent and orthodox and Christian, despite the Muslim incursions. And yes, we could have wrapped all of this up to say that Sergius had confirmed a new patriarch for Antioch and leave it at that. But this decision is significant and has garnered a special relationship and reverence by the Maronites for Pope Sergius, but also for the papacy with the Maronites long after. This is significant enough that through this bond to the papacy, the Maronites become one of the only Eastern Christian sects to remain in communion with the papacy and the West after the Great Schism, and to this day they still are with papal-approved rights of self-governance. So this is a moment in time where Pope Sergius said, yeah, sure, you deserve your own patriarch, and it has consequences all the way to the present day. On the website, our Lady of Lebanon, from the Maronite Catholic Parish of Australia, they elaborate on this lasting goodwill that continues between the Maronites and the papacy. Many popes have praised the Maronites. Referring to the Maronites, Pope Hormistus stated, I praise God that he preserves the faith of his soldiers in the midst of adversities. And Pope Leo X described the Maronites as a rose among thorns. So they're very happy about their special relationship. So things are looking good. He's, he's reaching out in a good way around the world. And he also has quite a lot of contact with other places, like England. In 688, the king of Wessex, Caedwalla, abdicated his throne and set out on a pilgrimage to Rome. 
Turns out he had been injured in battle, and his situation was deteriorating very quickly. He had likely already embraced Christianity, since he was a close friend and ally of our old friend St. Wilfred of York. But he now wished, as he was deteriorating and dying, to be baptized. And he was received in Rome by the Pope Sergius, who baptized him personally on April 10th, 689. And then he promptly died 10 days later. We have an account from the Venerable Bede, who says, Caedwalla, king of the West Saxons, having most vigorously governed his nation for two years, quitted his crown for the sake of the Lord and an everlasting kingdom, and went to Rome, being desirous to obtain the peculiar honor of being cleansed in the baptismal font at the threshold of the blessed apostles. For he had learned that in baptism alone the entrance into the heavenly life is open to mankind, and he hoped at the same time that being made clean by baptism he should soon be freed from the bonds of flesh and pass to the eternal joys of heaven. Both which things, by the help of the Lord, came to pass according as he had conceived in his mind. For coming to Rome at the time that Sergius was Pope, he was baptized on the holy Saturday before Easter Day in the year of our Lord 689, and being still in his white garments, he fell sick and was sent free from the bonds of the flesh on the 20th of April and obtained entrance into the kingdom of the blessed in heaven. So this is a pretty interesting moment. We have a king leaving his kingdom in England and coming to Rome to be baptized. The Pope had Caedwalla buried within St. Peter's, and his very long epitaph is also quoted in Bede, but we're, we're not going to do that. But this is not all the contact that Pope Sergius had with England either, because our old friend St. Wilfred is back again. We last left him in 686, having reconciled with Aldfrith, the king of Northumbria, and recovering some of his bishopric. Not all of it, but some. So it turns out that hadn't lasted very long, and by 691, Wilfred was back fighting with the king over the lands that should still be part of his bishopric. And then, when he found out that another piece of his bishopric was being carved away for another new potential bishop, Wilfred kind of saw the writing on the wall, and he fled to Mercia before he could be deposed and exiled once again. But of course, as soon as he showed up in Mercia, he found out that he had been deposed and exiled. Is he gonna get it as bad as Athanasius did? Not quite as bad as Athanasius, but he is definitely on that same level of fighty. He's just, he's not, he's not quite done. He's gonna just fight with everybody and be like, this is supposed to be all of mine. Just give it back. So he stays in Mercia for some time, but in the year 700, Wilfred once again was appealing to the Pope to help him. And once again, the Pope ordered that Wilfred should be restored to his see, at least the parts that now make up Herham and Ripon, because it's, you know, it's a small chunk. Just give him a small chunk back. Let's just put him to rest. But again, this was not going to be the end of Wilfred's fight, because an English council upheld Wilfred's deposition in 702, and he'd come appealing again. But that's in another episode. He's just going to fight forever. Well, I mean, Athanasius wins, uh, you know, to the desert and was like, I'm done with this. He was deposed so many times. And in the end, he was quite successful. You know, he ended up retaining his bishopric in the end. But Wilfred's just like, I want it all. Give it all back to me. And all of the kings over there are like, mm, no. But Sergius was going to go a little further with friends of St. Wilfred because he appoints the protege of St. Wilfred, the future St. Willibrord, to be the Bishop of the Frisians, which are a Germanic people who occupy what is the modern-day Netherlands. Willibrord had originally been sent to Frisia by Pippin, the Duke of the Franks, once he had taken the territory, but Willibrord wanted a papal commission to go forth and preach. So he comes to Rome, and as Bede tells us, as soon as Willibrord found that he had leave given him by the prince to preach there, he made haste to go to Rome, where Pope Sergius then provided over the apostolic see that he might undertake the desired work of preaching the gospel to the nations with his license and blessing, and hoping to receive of him some relics of the blessed apostles and martyrs of Christ, 
to the end, that which when he destroyed the idols and erected churches in the nation to which he preached, he might have the relics of saints at hand to put into them, and having deposited them there, might accordingly dedicate each of these places in the honor of the saint. So, he wants some relics of the apostles and the saints. Does he want, want it for tourism? He wants to take it to the Netherlands, Frisia. And he wants to set it in the ground and build churches there in honor of those saints and be like, hey, look at these wonderful things. Destroy all your pagan idols and come hang out over here. For tourism. For tourism, but also for conversion. So Pope Sergius consecrated Willebrord as the Bishop of the Frisians and bestowed him with a pallium at the Santa Cecilia on November 21st of 695. And Willebrod would go and found a monastery and a basilica in Utrecht and become their patron saint. So that's pretty cool. But most interestingly of all, when we're talking about England, Pope Sergius invited one of our greatest sources, the Venerable Bede, to Rome in hopes that he would serve as an advisor to the Pope. Oh, now things are getting personal. Bede! I love Bede. Bede is my patron saint, patron saints of historians. Gotta love him. He's the guy I've been quoting several times in this episode already. How can he write objectively if he's in the mix of it, though? Well, I'm going to quote from The Life of Bede, Chapter 5. Bede's learning and attainments were so highly esteemed that Pope Sergius wished to see him in Rome and consult him on questions of importance and difficulty relating to the church. He accordingly quotes a letter addressed by Sergius to the abbot Colfred, in which he is requested to send Bede, without delay, to Rome. But, some historians don't make much of this claim at all. There definitely was a letter sent to the abbot Colfred, but in the earliest manuscripts there's no mention of Bede by name, just a request for a monk, and Bede makes no such mention in his own works of any such invite. So, I quote from the same paragraph. Now it is argued, and apparently with truth, that Bede would not have dared to decline an invitation from coming from so high a quarter, and yet it is all but certain that Bede was never out of England. So even if Sergius tried to get Bede, he was unsuccessful. Didn't actually go. Nope, didn't actually go, so that's how he's able to write about it and stay impartial. Maybe he never received an invitation at all, but it is... The coolest of ideas to think that Bede could have gone and been an advisor to the Pope. I love it. But none of which that we have talked about so far is what Sergius is going to be best known for. We've had anti-popes, we've had missionaries, we've got St. Wilfred showing up. But the big, massive, and completely dominating event of Sergius's papacy is the Quinisext Council. And theoretically, this could be a council with its own episode, but it is definitely not an ecumenical council, as we're going to see, and for our purposes, we're going to explain it the best we can within the context we have for the papacy. So what's he need a council for anyway? It's not his council. Oh, mm. <laughs> So the Quinisext Council, also known as the Trulin Council or the Council in Trullo, was held in the imperial palace in Constantinople in 692 by the emperor Justinian II. It was attended by approximately 225 bishops who were exclusively Eastern. No Western bishops were invited or considered. Uh, that seems bad. This is another one of those, we made a declaration, but you weren't here. It's pretty much exactly what's coming, so... The only exception in terms of these all Eastern bishops was one bishop called Basil of Gortnia from Crete, who attended, and while he was there, he's like, yeah, I'm a papal legate, because Crete was considered direct territory of the Roman Patriarchate. I feel like he heard about this, um, you know, this underground ecumenical council, and was like, ah, Nobody else was invited to the party. Maybe I'll go and then pretend that I have more authority than I do because no one else is here. That, that's exactly what he did. He showed up and he claimed a bunch of authority that he absolutely did not have. So this is going to cause a lot of problems. 
The purpose of this council was to remedy the perceived incompletion of the Fifth and Sixth Ecumenical Council, which would be the Second and Third Councils of Constantinople, because these two councils had issued canons almost exclusively on theological and dogmatic matters, like Christology, but hadn't provided any disciplinary canons which would help govern the practices of clerics in their daily lives and religious traditions. So this council was being held to issue canons that would complement the 5th and 6th ecumenical councils, which is how we get the quinisext in the name. 5 and 6. This is the complement to 5 and 6. However, because this council was held in the East and attended only by Eastern bishops, all of the customs that are now being enshrined as official practice in canon law are going to be practices that are distinctly Eastern, and where they diverge from other traditions, like in the Armenian churches or the Western churches or the Roman church, it's the other church versions that are going to be condemned and the Eastern conventions that are going to be preserved as Orthodox. You can already see how this is going to be a problem. Not only is this going to illuminate the huge differences between the Church of Rome and the Church of Constantinople, but it's going to exacerbate old tensions by insisting that one version is correct and one version is deviant. It's not a great word to throw around when you're talking about the Church of Rome. No, no, not at all. Yeah, you can't just say that the practice of the Pope of Rome is deviant. We know how that goes later on in the 15th century. So this council produces a total of 102 disciplinary canons called apostolic canons because they're really leaning hard into it. You cannot make a change log without approval. You can't claim it's an apostolic change log when the Pope hasn't even logged in. No, can't do it. So these canons were copied into six tomes to be sent from the council to the Pope and to all the other major patriarchs. This is at best a mod that you can download if you feel like it. It sure is. And many of these canons condemned traditional Roman practices, such as Canon 55, which prohibited fasting on Saturdays, specifically because they knew the Romans were doing it. But we're mostly going to focus on the ones that caused the biggest problems for Rome. We're not going to talk about 102 canons. First, we're going to talk about Canon 82, which condemned and prohibited the depiction of Christ as a lamb. Oh, he can't, he can't be an adorable sheep? He cannot. The canon reads, In some pictures of the venerable icons, a lamb is painted to which the precursor points his fingers, which is perceived as a type of grace, indicating beforehand through the law, our true lamb, Christ our God. Embracing, therefore, the ancient types and shadows of symbols of truth and patterns given to the church, we prefer grace and truth receiving it as the fulfillment of the law. In order, therefore, that that which is perfect may be delineated to the eyes of all, at least in colored expression, we decree that the figure in human form of the Lamb who takes away all the sin of the world, Christ our God, be henceforth exhibited in images instead of as the ancient Lamb, so that all may understand by means of it the depth of the humiliation of the word of God, that we may recall to our memory his conversation in the flesh, his passion and salutary death, and his redemption which was wrought for the whole world. According to this canon, Christ must always be picted as a human, and all images of Christ as a lamb were no longer orthodox. Now, why this was significant for them is a little harder to suss out. One source I read said it had to do with being seen as comparing Christ to an animal, but... This is symbolism that has been around as long as the Bible. I mean, John 129 literally states, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I did a quick keyword search on a Google copy of the Bible and found at least six biblical references to Christ as a lamb, and I was not being thorough at all. He's the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. So if this is written in the Bible, how is a depiction not okay? So it has to be more than that. And so, 
I consulted Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium. Hello, Talby. For his perspective on this, he suggested that this could be the first sentiments of what would become the iconoclasm that's going to erupt in the next 30 years when all religious icons and depictions will come under heavy fire. And this is something we're going to be dealing with in a lot more detail then. So for now, we're just going to be aware that this is a growing shift in perspective in the East. And this might be part of its inception. And then in Timothy Gregory's A History of Byzantium, he notes that before this council, there was a characteristic hesitance to depict the human Christ in images and icons. And so that by the decision of this council to depict Christ that way, it's kind of setting a standard because almost immediately after the Emperor Justinian starts minting coins with Christ on them as a way of expressing his own power. But this is also going to contribute to the iconoclasm because it's going to exacerbate the feelings against images of Christ being used at all. You know, I'm sure that putting Christ on money would have been very objectionable to some. Oh, yeah. Huge rabbit hole we could go down here, but we do know that in this era, at the time that they issued this canon saying that no images of Christ as a lamb was orthodox, there was a lot of them. And there was one even in St. Peter's. It had an entire mosaic depicting the worship of the lamb in the atrium. All right. I see where they're coming from. Like, that's, you know, it might be Jesus, but it is kind of like one sidestep away from you know, worshipping gold cows. Well, exactly. And and maybe that's what they're getting at, is this first sentiment of that. But at the same time, they are going, hey, it's not orthodox to have this image, knowing that there's a giant one right in St. Peter's. Not going to go down well with Rome. So moving from there, there then was a series of canons on clerical celibacy and continence. And this is going to be a big one. In the East, the conventions on clerical continence and marriage had not at all been adopted. If you want to look at these conventions, we covered them in Sericius's episodes, and then we covered the origins of clerical celibacy in Pelagius II's episode. But in the East, clerical marriage was not the complete deal-breaker that it was in the West. This isn't to say that married priests were the norm or even super, super common, but both Rome and Constantinople had gone through periods of breakdown that had resulted in married clerics, or had come upon situations where married men had ended up ordained. And the East wanted to support those men by allowing married men to become clerics, and to protect them from separation from their wives, and also to take it one step further and punish clerics that abandon their wives. So that is literally as opposite as what's happening in Rome could possibly be. That's not to say that all of the canons regarding married clerics went against Roman practices, because canon 12 and 48 prohibit cohabitation between a bishop and a woman, wife or otherwise, and canon 3 prohibited all second marriages for clergymen, and prohibited a man marrying after he was ordained. But if he was married before, it was fine. They wanted to support that. So the biggest issue with this whole clerical marriage, clerical continence issue was Canon 13. And this becomes a big, big sticking point, so I'm going to read you the canon, and it's quite long. Since we know it to be handed down as the rule of the Roman Church, that those who are deemed worthy to be advanced to the diaconate or presbyteriate should promise no longer to cohabit with their wives, we, preserving the ancient rule in apostolic perfection and order, will that the lawful marriages of men who are in holy orders from this time forward firm, by no means dissolving their union with their wives, nor depriving them of their mutual intercourse at a convenient time. Wherefore, if anyone shall have been found worthy to be ordained subdeacon, deacon, or presbyter, he is by no means prohibited from admittance to such a rank, even if he shall live with a lawful wife." Nor shall it be demanded of him at the time of his ordination that he promise to abstain from lawful intercourse with his wife, lest we should affect injuriously marriage constituted by God and blessed by his presence as the gospel said. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And the apostle says, marriage is honorable and bed undefiled. And again, are you bound to a wife? Seek not to be loosed. 
but we know, as those who assembled in Carthage, with a care for the honest life and clergy, said that subdeacons who handle the holy mysteries and deacons and presbyters should abstain from their consorts according to their own course of ministration. So that which has been handed down through the apostles and preserved by ancient custom, we too likewise maintain, knowing that there is a time for all things, especially for fasting and prayer. For it is meet that they who assist in the divine altar should be absolutely continent when they are handling holy things, in order that they may be able to obtain from God what they ask in sincerity. In therefore, anyone shall have dared, contrary to the apostolic canons, to deprive any of those who are in holy orders presbyter, or deacon, or subdeacon, of cohabitation and intercourse with his lawful wife, let him be deposed. In like manner, if any presbyter or deacon in the presence of piety has dismissed his wife, let him be excluded from communion, and if he persevere in this, let him be deposed. It's a long canon with a lot of stuff, but to spell this out, this canon allows married clerics below the rank of bishop to have sex with their wives at a quote-unquote convenient time, i.e. when they're not administering sacrament or conducting the Eucharist. Yeah, don't do that up, up on the altar? What? Don't, don't bone on Sunday? I guess. Which is very different from the tradition in the West where perpetual and permanent abstinence slash continence is required for a cleric not to taint the sanctity of the Eucharist. And this canon also allows those below the rank of priest to live with their wives if they so choose, which was, and, and they're absolutely not allowed to set their wives aside, which certainly doesn't meet the standards of Rome at all. This couldn't be more different. They're basically saying, you want to live with your wife, that's cool until you're a priest. You want to have sex with your wife, that's cool until you're a bishop and not on the day that you're handling the Eucharist. And Rome's going, absolutely not. But there is one more canon that was also directly concerning to Rome. And this is a revision of the 28th canon from the Council of Chalcedon, the only canon that was not approved by Pope Leo at the time, the canon that attempted to make the Patriarch of Constantinople equal to the Pope, as Constantinople was the new imperial city. You remember what an issue that was? Yeah. This would make their power and influence equal. It would reduce apostolic succession to a purely honorary concept and eliminate papal primacy. So now they're bringing this back, and Canon 36 of this Quinisex Council is basically just reviving that old one. As Warren Treadgold says in A History of the Byzantine State and Society, the council reduced the Pope's primacy of authority to a mere precedence of honor. Not good. So these are all very, very, very concerning for Rome. So it's not surprising to us that when he received these canons, Pope Sergius categorically refused to acknowledge the council as valid at all. He rejected every single canon from this council even if there were many that he would otherwise have supported. According to Andrew Economou, in his response to Emperor Justinian II, Sergius declared that the canons were outside ecclesiastical usage and that he would rather die than consent to erroneous novelties and would not be captive in matters of religion. So he's just like, no, absolutely not. None of this works for us. But when the Emperor Justinian receives the Pope's refusal, he was stunned. He was absolutely bowled over, gobsmacked, considering that there had been this bishop, Basil of Gortnia in Crete, who had been there and claimed to be a representative of the Pope and agreed with everything. And he and the Pope had a good relationship and everything had been mutually beneficial at this point. So Justinian's suddenly getting this massive rejection slap in the face, and he is absolutely livid. So the emperor orders his magistrianus, who is also called Sergius, so Sergius, not that Sergius, to arrest the two papal apocrysaries in Constantinople. He arrests the actual papal legate from the Sixth Ecumenical Council, who's John, the Bishop of Portus, 
and a priest called Boniface who was known to be an advisor to the Pope. And these men are kept as hostages to warn the Pope against the dangers of not accepting the council canons that have been presented to him. So, hey, confirm my canons, or um, your buddies here are not going to do so well. But Sergius remains completely steadfast and refuses to relent. And this makes Justinian so much angrier. So he decides to order the arrest of Pope Sergius and demands that he be brought back to Constantinople for trial. Are you reminded of Pope Martin I yet? Yeah. Yeah, when the emperor announces that the pope should be arrested and dragged to Constantinople, the only thing that most people are thinking is death. Justinian now sent Zacharias, his protospatharius slash bodyguard, to arrest the pope. And this man, in almost all of the sources that I read, is called notoriously violent. So now things are not looking good. He now has a notoriously violent man coming to Rome to arrest him. But it seems we're not the only ones that are hearing overtures of Pope Martin in all of this, because Sergius appealed to the Exarch in Ravenna and members of the militia to help. He's like, look, this is how this is going. This is gonna be a Pope Martin situation. Please help me. And the militia, which is made up of troops from the Eastern Italian Duchy of the Pentapolis, and the people of Rome, ensured that the Pope was not to be taken. They're like, absolutely not. So we go to Paul the Deacon's account. The emperor sent Zacharias his protospatharius and ordered that Pope Sergius should be brought to Constantinople because he was unwilling to approve and subscribe to the error of that synod which the emperor had held. But the soldiery of Ravenna and the neighboring parts, despising the impious orders of the emperor, drove the same Zacharias with reproaches and insults from the city of Rome. They sent him away. But this is not the full account, because our more dramatic sources tell us that Zacharias got to the Pope in the Lateran, but then the Pope's supporters stormed the Basilica and were absolutely prepared to tear Zacharias limb from limb, and the only reason that this emperor's bodyguard who came to arrest the Pope survives is that Pope Sergius hides Zacharias under his personal bed and then goes out to calm the crowds to save this man. So this one, and of course, our more dramatic quote, comes from the Liber Pontiff Callus. He then sent Zacharias, his ferocious chief Spatharius, with a mandate to bring the pontiff as well to the imperial city. But God's mercy went before him, and St. Peter the Apostle, Prince of the Apostles, supported him and preserved his church unmutilated. The hearts of the Ravenite soldiery were stirred up, along with those of the Pentapolin duchy and the parts all around not to allow the pontiff of the apostolic see to go up to the imperial city. When a crowd of the soldiery foregathered from every side, Zacharias the Spitharius was terrified, and fearing he may be killed by that mob of soldiers, he craved that the gates of the city be shut and the pontiff be held. But in fear, he took refuge in the pontiff's bedroom, and in tears he begged the pontiff to have mercy on him and not let anyone take his life. The army of Ravenna entered the city by St. Peter's Gate with weapons, and the crowds came to the Lateran Episcopum, burning to see the pontiff whom they understood from a rumor that was going around that he'd been smuggled out by night and put on a ship. Since both the upper and lower doors of the Patriarchate had been shut, they threatened to pull them to the ground if they were not quickly opened. Then, in extreme terror and despair for his survival, Zacharias the Spitharius got under the pontiff's bed so that he went out of his mind and lost his senses. The blessed Pope comforted him and told him to have no fear. The pontiff went outside the basilica named after the Lord Pope Theodore, opening the doors and sitting on a seat beneath the apostles. He honorably received the common soldiers and the people who had come to see him. Giving a suitable and gentle reply, he calmed their feelings, though they, driven by enthusiasm for love and reverence both the God's Church and the Holy Pope, did not give up picketing the Patriarchate until they had expelled Spitharius Zacharias out of Rome with injuries and insults. So they basically drove this man out on fear of death, like, on fear of his life, 
if he should lay a hand on the Pope. And the Pope goes, it's all good. It's fine. I'm good. Send him away. It's all good. This is a win for the Pope. But it definitely looks bad for the future. He'd only narrowly avoided being arrested, and only due to lucky military and secular support had he been protected. In every way that we look at it, the Emperor still holds the cards and all the power, and there's no way that he's going to be rebuffed by this. He's just going to send more men. So it is extremely fortunate for Sergius that Emperor Justinian II was deposed before he could retaliate. And Pope Sergius is essentially in the clear. Although, side note, after having his nose cut off and being sent into exile, it's not that Justinian II is gone. He's gonna come back, but that's gonna be a situation for another pope to deal with. So for now, he's good. Sergius is safe. So in response to almost being arrested and dragged to Constantinople, likely as a display of protest against the Quinisex Council, Sergius also contributed to the liturgy of the church service by being the first pope to introduce the Agnus Dei, which is the Lamb of God, into the Roman Mass before the Eucharistic Rite. So the Agnus Dei is an invocation to the Lamb of God that was likely a Syrian custom before Sergius introduced it to Rome. It is sung slash recited during the fraction of the host. And basically... It's an invocation that says, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. Yep. You can see why this would be particularly provocative, considering the condemnation of this Lamb of God stuff at the council. No lambs, only gods. But he's feeling very spiteful now, so he also turns to that mosaic in St. Peter's of the Lamb, and he has it completely restored and beautified. He's just like, no. You're going to condemn all these lambs? It's not going to happen. I'm going to make this the most beautiful lamb mosaic you've ever seen. He's full of spite, and I love it. So, like many popes of the 7th century, Sergius also restored and decorated churches, like St. Peter's, where he bestowed a great deal of treasure, the Basilica of Saints Cosma and Damiano, St. Euphemia, St. Aria in the Ostia, the Oratory of St. Andrew on the Via Labicana, and the Santa Susanna, where he had been a cardinal priest. He also moved the body of Pope Leo from the portico to inside St. Peter's in the first version of the altar that we discussed in Pope Leo's episode, episode 47. And then, after a long and eventful papacy, Sergius died on the 8th of September, 701, from natural causes. And according to Wendy J. Reardon, Pope Sergius is the first pope that was not buried at St. Peter's in the portico or the atrium, but actually inside of the church in a quote-unquote most elegant tomb. Seems fitting, because he had also just moved Leo inside. And then his tomb was destroyed in the building of new St. Peter's, so that distinction doesn't amount for very much. Not that great now. No, it was wonderful at the time. You know, he was making a nice association between him and Leo, and then it's gone. We do have an epitaph for him, but it's debated whether it's the correct epitaph or for a future Pope Sergius. It's credited to this Pope by church historian Malleus and credited to Pope Sergius II by Renzo Montini. But having read it, it's definitely for the other Pope, so we're not going to include it. Which now means it's time to rate him. Papatum infallium. He's easily one of the most important pontiffs of the 7th century. His election effectively prevented an ongoing schism in Rome and quelled two antipopes. Finally ends the last of the three-chapter schism, appoints the Maronite bishop in Antioch, securing the lasting loyalty of the Maronites to the papacy, appoints a bishop to the Frisians, and expands evangelism to the Netherlands, he resists the Quinisex Council canons, defends papal primacy, and the canons on celibacy set by previous popes. He defends traditional customs in Rome. He expands the liturgy with the Agnus Dei, which is still around to today, so there's a lot. Yeah, I'm leaning towards like a seven. I think it's gonna be high. Yeah, I'm gonna give him I'm gonna give him an eight. Because, you know, Martin Martin got a 7 and an 8 as well, and he was just as resistant. He just uh, got a much more negative consequence. So I think that that's, 
No, I don't want him to be exactly with Martin. I'll give him a seven, and he'll have a 14. Fructus prohibitum. I don't really have anything here on him. He is not the scandalicious of the Sergius. So that's a zero. Seculari impactum. Well, the King of Wessex comes to be baptized by him. He asked for support against the might of the emperor and got militia who served under the exarch to come and support him and they were ready to kill that man. So that's pretty impressive. He made an enemy of the emperor though, so that's not great. And if things had gone a little differently, he might have been looking at a fate like Martin I. Good for the people, bad for his secular relationships. So there's some good, there's some bad. What do you think it's worth? Um, uh, look, uh, maybe like a six. I think that's pretty good. I'm going to give him a five because I think the fact that everyone came to protect him means that he must have been fairly popular. They must have liked what he was doing. So he will get an 11 in Seculare Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. I wonder if you're going to like this one. I just looked at it again for the first time in a long time. Made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, A, did he accidentally close his eyes? Or B, is he possessed? Uh, I, he, he's looking very extremely upwards and to the, like, right, he's looking to the side. No, no. Those are not pupils. Those are, at best, shadows. Are you sure? I mean, they look pretty pupilly. What color would his eyes have to be then? Yellow? Light brown? Hazel? They could be hazel. I mean, he's either giving a very coy, like, who me? Or he doesn't have pupils at all. His eyes are closed. Like, yeah, you know, some people, every single picture of them is their eyes closed. That could be. It could be that. Except, like, you know, it's supposed to be, like, a sitting for a painting. Did he fall asleep? What happened? Well, you know, maybe he just, they they decided with this one. Because these paintings were all done so much later. Maybe they just decided with him that uh, they got tired of drawing eyeballs for a while. So we'll just pretend he's asleep for a hundred years. He's taken a nap. He's taken a nap the entire time we're painting him. It's probably worth something. It. it it's definitely unique in the lack of eyeball. No eyeballs. Let's go with a three. You're going to give him a three. I'm going to give him a six because it made us laugh. It made me laugh when I looked at it after not looking at it for months. So he's getting a six from me. He's got a very Roman, that that Roman nose going on. I haven't seen Ooh, that pronounce of a Roman nose on a pope in ages. He's also got some really luscious lips vis-a-vis Linus. He's got some... He, he is suffering from what one of my other friends calls the rabbit mouth, though. You know. You know what I'm saying. Like, you got too much beard and your mouth is in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's happening as well. Bunny poofs and rabbit mouths. It's it's one of those men who, like, they've they've put his lips in here, but if he were an actual person, you'd actually have to, like, lift up part of his beard to see his lips. If you Google, like, rabbits yawning, you will get the exact mouth I am talking about. Rabbit mouth. That's what it is. So does that, does that make you want to give him more points, less points? No, we're going to stay there. So he gets a 9, which when we score out is a 2.25. We have two more images for you. Oh, there's a rabbit yawning. It's adorable. I want to to give gentle squishes. Rabbit sneezing also brings up the mouth. It's just a rabbit opening their mouth. But that's exactly what his mouth looks like. You're 100% right. Here's the second image on him. That's a different man entirely. This is a villain in a Disney film. It does look like a Disney villain. It doesn't look anything like the first one. It's just, it's there. So now I have one more for you to look at. It's, um, funnily enough, oh gosh, now that I look at this, he's definitely sleeping in this one. So I have a painting for you to look at. This painting is The Dream of Pope Sergius by Roger van der Weyden, painted in the early 15th century and is currently in the Getty Museum. Are we, did we miss like a huge chunk of like, this man likes to nap? 
Maybe, because he's this is him having a dream. Yeah, look, he's napping again. Yeah, so while you look at it, I will describe it to you, and then you can tell me how you feel about it. It's believed to have been an altarpiece from the Chapel of St. Hubert in the Church of St. Gudul in Brussels. This is based on a legendary account of a dream Pope Sergius is said to have had, where he was told that the Bishop of Tongeren Maastricht Liège, which is Tongeren in Belgium today, Lambert of Maastricht, had been assassinated. He was told in the same dream that the man who should replace this bishop was a priest called Hubert, St. Hubert, and this is the moment that is depicted in the painting. This painting, they they got the spirit, but all the perspective is way off, but they tried to do hyper-realistic textures on everything. Yep. So it it looks very odd. It's like, have you ever tried to build a Sims house and then get the camera stuck in a weird angle? That is not something I have done, but sure. <laughs> it is definitely one of those sort of feelings. Um, so there's some very tiny peacocks that are, you know, probably the correct size for the people near them if the people farther in the background weren't monsters. <laughs> It's it's definitely true. And this is this is of course the first look. This is when perspective was becoming a thing because this is kind of early Dutch Renaissance painting, which is similar to early Renaissance painting when when perspective became a thing. The artist also could not it it feels like they did not want to ever cut off parts of characters. No. So we've got angel wings that are just in a cramped, like a small kid riding on a line <laughs> for the first time. It kind of scoots under where it shouldn't. Yeah, those are very tiny wings, aren't they? They start off really big and then suddenly and there's not enough room. We got some monkeys, golden monkeys on the top of this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Up at the top. Sergius is having a, a good kneeling nap. That does not look like a comfortable position to fall asleep on. My husband falls asleep almost anywhere. In a lot of positions, and I've never seen him in this position specifically. This one looks way uncomfortable. Jordan once fell asleep on the edge of a couch like that. Like, his body was on the couch, and he was kind of just resting on his elbow like that. And when he woke up, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, Ow! (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's that. There's a very uncomfortable sleeping man. Tempus Pontificus. December 15th of 687 to September 8th of 701, 14 years and a score of 3.5. It's pretty good. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Yes, he has a feast day of September 8th, and according to Wendy J. Reardon, he was acclaimed as a saint very shortly after his death. He also has a feast day in the Maronite calendar of January 23rd. But oddly, he does not have any patronage, which seems... There is a Saint Sergius who is the patron saint of Syria, but this is not him. He, he is not a patron saint of anything, so you get to make this man the patron saint of something. Uncomfortable naps. <laughs> uncomfortable naps. I knew it was going to be nap related, so. Specifically uncomfortable ones. You know, when you accidentally fall asleep somewhere and like half your body falls asleep with it and you wake up and you can't move your leg. I mean, that's every nap I've ever taken in my entire life because I don't nap. <laughs> naps are the worst. They are so not great. <laughs> every nap is uncomfortable. This is exactly true. I agree with this. Every nap is uncomfortable. I don't get to have them. They suck. So that brings us to his total score, which is a very hearty and very impressive 31.75. Nice. Considering we've had like below 10 for the past couple popes. Yeah, we haven't had a 30 pope since uh a deodatus who you gave a lot of points to because he died in the plague i felt bad you liked him a lot so uh that brings us to a very important question which is do you think he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull so i mean he did an awful lot 
but I don't know if he's bullworthy. He's not, I don't want to talk to people about how he has people who respect him still and things like that. Like He like, resisted the canons of the Quinisex Council, where weaker popes definitely wouldn't have. He was almost going to be dragged to Constantinople and only wasn't because Justinian got his nose cut off and was deposed. Mm, I'm just not excited. Oh, I think we might have to go to divine intervention. It's time. I think we might have to do it. I'm trying to see. Do I feel strongly enough about him? He is definitely a standout in the 7th century compared to the popes we have covered. The last pope that we gave a papal bull to was... Agatho. Like, it has been, it's been a while, and there hasn't been anybody doing anything really amazing. And here he is, doing a heck of a lot. All right, here we go. Let's roll it. I have rolled a 15. Oh, so he gets it. (laughs) Congratulations, Sergius, by divine intervention, which feels appropriate. Yeah, don't nap on it, sir. That would that would not be in your bed of it. So congratulations, Sergius. You've done it. And that brings us to the end of our episode, but we quickly have some thanks to make and some patrons to absorb of their temporal punishments. So first, we absolve Daniel Knack, Nick Aloia, David White, Nat, and Eric Rational. Thank you, guys. Ego te absolvo. Also, a big thanks to Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium for weighing in on this and sending me so many wonderful books. Uh, We'd like to thank Laurie Ankerson, the Byzantine ambassador on Twitter, and Patricia Cullum and Derek of the Hellenistic Age Pod for helping source about attitudes of clerical celibacy in the East. Gotta thank Dad Pod Matt Breen from the Explorers Podcast for recommending us as a hoot. Oh, yeah, a hoot. Uh, then we'd like to also thank Flat Pack History of Sweden, Long May She Rain podcast, and the Presidency's podcast for always having wonderful things to say about us. Thank you very much. And with that, we can also say thank you to you too, listener. And goodbye. Only one listener? Listener. Well, we don't know if they're listening together. They could be. Oh. Uh... <laughs> But the PBS always says, and viewers like you, regardless, because it's a community. But we could be just saying it directly to the one person. Thank you. That's really creepy. Thank you, in particular, person listening directly right now. That special person. You deserve it. Goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye.